I'm here. I'm here. You know what a professional does, Ben? Uh, waits for podcast co-host. Uh, well, I was going to say shows up on time, but, I'll, but yes, that's both, also true. Does, bo- does both of <laughs> those things. What a, what a professional does is he doesn't complain when, it, when his co-host shows up late. Well, so. And it's fairly predictable, right? Well, yeah. Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> and? And I strive for to make it um, not as predictable. Um, like sometimes I'll surprise you and be like, hey, I'm here. I'm ready. Um, yeah, or sometimes you'll say, hey, it's, it's going to be 205, gonna be and 205. then I'll say, hey, 205, 206, whatever it takes, and then, uh, you know, it's uh, 10 minutes after that or so. Then I'll say, I think I said, like, 210. Yep, and, you did say, you said 210. You said and 210. then it was, um, it was 216. But you also said you had a cool story, bro. Uh, oh, my gosh, dude, I got a, I got a cool story. Um, so here's here's why I was late. It's a food safety reason course right because uh, i've not... well i i'm uh, i the, the jury's still out I, 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 I reserve the right to decide whether it's food safety or not after you tell me the story the, te- <laughs> the text that i said sent to you was um i have a cool story for the uh, pod about bourbon food safety all right so here it is it's safe bourbon it's bourbon safe. is safe but don do you know that there's some bourbon that might there, there's a question there's a question about its safety and it's a uh, so I, i've just gotten into bourbon drinking um thanks to you <laughs> Um, and and I'll, I'll say thanks to Carl Custer um, and then also um, Renee Boyer. And and I say by just gotten into it, I, I mean like in the last like three or four years. So there's a there's a place here and I'm, I'm going to protect all the innocent. But there's a place here in Raleigh and they they do like uh, bourbon and whiskey um, in uh, in certain parts of their food. So it's a f- food service company They and they also – so from an extension standpoint, they're like part of my constituents, right? Someone from a mm. restaurant calls up and they're like, hey, we have a question about safety of something. Can you help us with it? So this is one of those times where I got connected to um, a business and they have a question, which is um, about um, antique whiskey. And and I'm going to give you a little bit of background here because I just learned a little bit about this. So um antique whiskey is more expensive than not antique whiskey that's that's uh item number one so as it ages um there's there's different like flavors there's different uh you know things that happen so if you you know you and this isn't in the in the barrel like this isn't 12 year old aged four roses this is i'm gonna bottle up some whiskey and it's gonna sit around for for a long time and so what i learned was when it comes to bourbon, there's there's different types of mash builds. Do you know what a mash build is, Don? Don, are you still there? I, I'm still here. I'm on <laughs> I'm on mute because I was adjusting my desk. Oh. Um, uh, I do not know what a mash build is. I know I know what a software build is. It's like so- I don't know. <laughs> it's like that, but with the mash. But with the mash. With the mash <laughs> that they make the that they ferment the or ferment the alcohol and then uh, how the alcohol comes out before they distill it. So there's lots of different um, – so over time, the the mash builds have changed. So there's a market which is quite um, a costly market for antique whiskeys in a sealed bottle from the, the distillery. So – and when I say costly, this is um, – we're, we're talking maybe $80 to $300 per ounce. Um, so uh, high value. Because uh, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of cash, it, um, but there's a secondary market that I I didn't really know too much about until I talked about it with some people today, where 
there are decanters that exist that were sealed, but they came from, they're like novelty decanters, like a, a football with your favorite football team, and there's a bunch of uh, bourbon inside of it, or a specialty decanter that came from the Indy 500. And, and these decanters aren't just normal glass, they are glazed ceramic. And hmm. the older, so this is where the food safety part comes in. I see where you're going. So the older, the older this is, the more likelihood that there might be some lead in this glaze. And the cost difference between the because they are not because um, there there is a question about safety of these. You can still buy this like you know Indy Indy 500 football sports ball um, decanter glaze, but it might be like forty bucks for the whole bottle at where the same. Um, bourbon in a um, uh, in that sealed bottle is, is commanding like eight hundred dollars or whatever, right? So you see, see what's, Be- because because there's no lead in it. Because there's no lead, and so the question is the the question that was posed to me is how much is too much lead? Mm. Good how, question. How would you know? Mm-hmm. What kind of Other, analytics are there on yep. there? And how much would that like? How much would that cost? Is it even possible? So can we? Uh, what the, these antique um, bourbon decanters are like passed down from generation to generation. You might find them in an estate sale. And are we really, are we just really tossing out a whole bunch of um, a bunch of alcohol? And so the standard, um, the standard answer um, from the companies that have the that own the brand rights from these antique football decanters. So so I'll give you an example like Wild Turkey as as one. Um they the the whiskey aficionados um say that that if you call Wild Turkey and say hey is it safe to to drink bourbon out of this this Indianapolis 500 thing they'd say no. No, it's not um because of lead. And and that makes for a good answer, but is it like a is it a real? It, what's the risk? Tell tell me more about the risk. And so I I, I don't know the answer to this, but I I spent um, I spent a lunchtime today that that went over over time, and that's why I'm late to to talk with you. Um, sort of discussing how how would we go about answering this question? How who who are the right people to get involved? What do we know? I, I did a little bit of digging on the internet um, earlier today um, and yesterday about. Um, like analytics of uh, of metals in alcohol and how like a normal just lead test that you would use in water probably is not going to tell you anything. So what do you how do you how do you figure it out? Um, is di- does different glaze matter? Are you know are certain ones some of the some of these decanters um, less or more risky than others when it comes to to lead? Um, and and there's I read a couple of papers about lead. Um, in just not, not lead occurring in alcoholic beverages naturally, but I put naturally in Richard fingers. Cause it's like, as part of the distillation process that there might, there, there may be some lead in wine. Um, but, but so what's the high end of that? And could you make that the, or sorry, the, yeah, the high end of what we would accept in wine. Could you make that kind of your your target or, or high end of, of what you, or low end, um, of a threshold in, in whiskey. So, so anyway, it was a really like interesting conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to do some more work on this. I'm going to, um, I actually, I, I mentioned in the last podcast I was in Louisville at, uh, 
the rabbit hole distillery uh, for a um, IFT affiliate meeting. I'm going to follow up with some uh, bluegrass IFT uh, affiliate people who may listen to the podcast and may not about this to find out if they know where I might be able to find some information about lead in, in bourbon. Because the bourbon drinkers and the bourbon restaurant basically said, everyone tells us this is a no, but we haven't seen any data and we don't believe them. So can you help us find out if it's really a no or not? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So that's, yeah. my, that's my story. That's a good story. Um, so I, actually, I um, I actually had a uh, science uh uh, bourbon whiskey related thing um, come across my desk, uh, unrelated to anything that you're talking about. And this was a paper uh, that was published in the Journal of Food Science, uh, which I tweeted about, entitled Bourbon and Rye Whiskeys Are Legally Distinct But Are Not Discriminated by Sensory Descriptive Analysis. And a new, a new friend uh, from Twitter um, uh, retweeted that and then gave a multi-tweet thread, uh, basically explaining the nature of the sensory analysis and helping uh, lay people interpret the paper. But so number one, I was interested in the topic, uh, but I was also interested because one, the senior author on the manuscript was scheduled to come to, uh, Rutgers university and I was going to have dinner with her. And uh, yeah, her name is Hildegard Heyman and she's a faculty member at UC Davis and she's known for being a sensory scientist and, and for her work in enology. Uh, uh, you know, that is the science of winemaking, but, uh, but, and just co- coincidentally the week that she was supposed to come, I saw this paper, uh, drop in journal food science. Unfortunately, uh, Dr. Heyman, uh, got a particularly nasty case of the flu. And so we're looking to reschedule her visit for some other time. And so she's not, I'm not going to be having uh, dinner with her this week, but it would have been, otherwise it would have been a really interesting, uh, conversation. So, yeah. And I think, you know, when you've mentioned lead, uh, the the first thing that came to my mind is, well, I know FDA has some stuff on this, but of course it's not uh, not right. for bourbon. It's for lead glazed uh, pottery, and uh, there are, um, you know, th- there, there's there's and easily I found a web page on uh, lead uh, in uh, lead glazed lead glazed traditional pottery, and actually FDA has a whole series of web pages on lead in food, foodwares, and dietary supplements. So um, that that also, and actually, there's also in that on that, and we'll link to this page in the show notes. There's there's information on regulatory regulations and guidance for lead in foods, um, uh, and so right, it looks like reading from that, um, the limits for bottled water is five ppb, and so um, yeah, and then fifteen ppb for drinking water, and so I would say. Um, you know, certainly if the, if the bourbon was, was at five PPB, that for sure would be fine because you're probably going to drink more water than you are <laughs> bourbon, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, you might. Well, well it yeah. depends, Ben. It depends. Um, uh, and, you know, so obviously that would be one place to go. But, but you know, in setting these, these numbers, you have to like weigh, well, okay, what's the lifetime risk and, you know, how much you're going to consume and, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously with uh, lead, we're especially concerned about children, uh, I think probably we we would the podcast would recommend that that children not be given bourbon. You know, period is probably not probably not a best practice. Oh, I have a story about um, that. <laughs> let me let me just uh, that's me putting a pin in that one. Let All right, circle we'll back pop, around. pop it in the stack. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah. So anyway, um, interesting topic, and and yeah, good luck working that out. Well, yeah, and and I'm not like you know, I, I'm this isn't my my area. Um, right. 
but but I'm interested in answering help answer this question, right? Like finding the right people who who can answer this and can then tell what what I like about um, a lot of the stuff that that we do is to be able to tell the story about here's a real like this is a business who who as part of my extension work I support. And how do they have a re- – this is a real question, right? Like this is right. – has a business impact for them. They're, they're asking all the right questions. They're like, why – we really don't want to make our customers sick. Like that is like paramount in their, in their conversation. And we see that there is this whiskey out there that from a collector standpoint, from a tasting standpoint, might be really interesting – how do we reconcile those two things? And and if it's like they, they're really open, they're like, if the answer is like no, then then it's then it's a no. It's not like a someone who's coming to be like, how can we make it so it's going to be safe? It's like if it's a no, it's it's a no. But we don't we don't we've not seen enough information on, that is that is convincing us that it's a no. So let's go make some. And, yeah, and it, and th- there's there's some interesting trade-offs here, right? Like, well, and there's there's uh, an issue of um, legality, right? Like, let's say there's some ceramics that are safe, and yeah. there's some ceramics that are risky, right? And and there's a huge financial consequence because if the difference is between forty dollars and four hundred dollars, well, there's that's an incentive for somebody to lie, right? And and so the question is like, what should the number be, and then how do you prove what that number is, right? Um, and and yeah, and it gets into analytical. Chemistry, it gets into toxicology, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you're right. You are an extension uh, food safety professional. Professional, and guess what? This is an extension food safety question. And it's not. It's not one that you have the expertise to solve. But guess what? You have the you have the expertise to help it be solved by finding the appropriate people that, that know the answers. Uh, yep, absolutely. So that's what I'm going to do. And it was really it's cool. it's a fun like it's it's a fun one, right? Like right. People get excited about food. People get excited about bourbon. Um, and yeah, so the last thing I'll leave you with on this is that I learned cause I was uh, in, in, in talking with, um, the individuals who are really, really into bourbon, they were talking about how over time, the sensory differences plateau in from depending on the mash build. And, and so they, they said, they talked about the bourbon coming apart as being sort of a technical term, which I'm not familiar with. Have you, have you heard that before? Like, I have not. So it, it has to do with basically how it changes the the flavor profile and the um, in, instead of like one consistent smooth drink that you would get with bourbon that it it's coming in your mouth it's in your mouth in different parts phrasing um, and it is so anyway I asked like how do you know about this and they told me that there's a place called Moonshine University and <laughs> I and and there are so. Um, it's a like for profit, um, place, uh, on, uh, how to learn how to, about the science of distilling. So I think we can link to it. It's, it's a great name. I, uh, then made a joke about, um, maybe testing out a moonshine, moonshine university from when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> which also got a laugh, but anyway, so I'm going to do a little bit of digging on just learning some of the science of this stuff. Cause I think it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, all right, so the last little bit of bourbon and kids. Um, I, I have uh, in the past used bourbon 
um, in, in lieu of rubbing alcohol to remove ma- magic marker from one of my kids' face. I think we talked about this oh, on, we the sh- on the show. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the update. I did it again yesterday. So, <laughs> so I, um, I, we, we had a, uh, we had a party for, um, Jack, my older son's hockey team. His season is over. And I haven't talked to you since we, uh, went through a roller coaster of a weekend of, winning our league championship in a tournament and it was really really super exciting kids were like phenomenal we won every we played four games that weekend won every game by just one goal and were down at some point in the game so I had to come back and it was super stressful as a parent as a coach uh but the kids uh, had like I mean they were they were awesome so we had our like big year-end celebration um, thanking everybody and just get together and on to the next year. And as part of that, um, the kids were signing um, these mats that go around a picture of the team. So everybody's got their name and their number on it. So they'll have that to remember. And one of the moms who is super funny. Um, and I say that like, it sounded like I was being sarcastic because she is really funny. Um, she uh, decided to draw a mustache on, on Jack's face with a silver marker, knowing that I know how to remove it because we have <laughs> bourbon at home and I did. And it was great. It was fine. So, so use bourbon uh, to remove magic marker or permanent marker on kids. Don't feed it to them. Well, and what's the what's the toxicological risk from silver marker? I I gotta think uh, based on our earlier discussions about silver and foods uh, foods with silver that uh, I don't know that that seems a little risky. <laughs> oh, it could be it could be silver marker toxic. We'll find something. Um, yeah. So so anyway, that's why I was late, and that's where I'm at. And I know I'm I'm cognizant because uh, I'm a professional. That, uh, that you've got a heart out today, so I do. So we'll do. we'll keep we'll keep on track. Um, so I have I've got I'm Don. My stack is is deep today. I got lots of stuff I want to talk about. Um, and so, but I, we can go lots of different ways. I do. You want to? Are there things that aren't food safety that you want to talk about before we get into food safety stuff? Uh no. Let's let's go for it. All right. Um, so. We had uh, talked in the last episode um, about um, a little bit on citrus and um, bar lemons and the contamination on the outside of citrus fruit. And you made a comment um, that um, one of our friends, friend of the show, but we couldn't remember who, either Michelle Daniluk or Linda Harris takes pictures of where they see uh, bar lemons or, or whatever being used as a food, like directly into a drink to show the citrus industry, hey, look, you guys don't think that the rind is, is edible, but it is being used. And then um, we, got, we, got a, we got follow-up from, from one of those individuals, um, the esteemed uh, Dr. Daniluk, who said, I can't believe you guys talked about this and didn't talk about my paper in food protection trends that came out today because <laughs> we we didn't we didn't know it came out right right that day um, and so we will link to this it's a paper entitled survival of salmonella on lemon and lime slices and subsequent transfer to beverages um, and so um, the uh, um, I'll, I'll read directly from the abstract little is known about the microbial risks associated with adding lemon and lime slices to beverages in the food service industry, salmonella survival on lemon and limes and transfer from these fruits into water and unsweetened iced tea was examined. Salmonella survival on lemon flavado is, is uh, significantly 
higher um, after 24 hours with storage at room temperature. Um, and so that was uh, 2.45 log per CFU per slice. Then with, with storage on refrigerated below the detection limit. Um, and the same is true for uh, albedo at room temperature compared to ice and refrigeration. So going back to our conversation last week was about infused um, waters. And so um, what I gather from, from this is um, colder and ice infused water is probably safer than room temperature infused waters when it comes to having uh, lemon and lime slices in it, if there was salmonella there in the first place. Yep, makes makes sense, and and I I'm I'm pleased to see that Michelle um, has also linked to some of the previous articles that we've critiqued uh, before. Um, she, she cites them in her work. Uh, Microbial flora on restaurant beverage lemon slices is one, and there's another one on um, uh, who well who, who uh, that I that I'm not seeing at the moment. But anyway, so good 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 for her for for you know doing doing a good job and 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 tying all this literature together. This is a really this is a really nicely nicely done paper. I think uh, very very well uh, very well researched and uh, and important information. Absolutely, and shout outs to um, other I think friends of the show, um, Rachel McKeegan and Laurel Dunn, who are uh, people that we know as well. Who were co-authors? I, that wasn't just random shout-outs. I wasn't just doing like a mic check. They, uh, Rachel McKeegan's the lead author, and Laurel's a, a second author, and then uh, uh, Michelle Danilek was our was the the senior senior author. So good, good paper. Yep, very good. Um, did, Don, did you know um, that we had a uh, um, the, our blog has a broken link? Yeah, I did know that. I did know that um, in our our blog, um, and this was pointed out. I, this is a really weird thing. This was this was a, a message that came to us from a person that works in Australia, and they work for what seems to be a. Um, it's a, it's a so Australia has. Um, uh, basically, uh, Medicare for all, right? They have health insurance. Everybody in the country has health insurance. Um, there, but but you can also get private health insurance. And a person reached out to us that is from that private health insurance company, um, and she said, uh, "Hey, I was reading an article on your site when I found some broken links. I'm not sure who I could get in touch with so I can fix this. Could you please point me in the right direction?" I said, "Yeah, sure. Just tell me where the links are." And it was uh, basically um, something from uh, quite some time ago. Uh, it was uh, Food Safety Talk 25, uh, which was whoops was quite some quite some time ago, oh, yeah. and it's not it's not not showing up in the links here. Um, Maybe there's a problem with that. Maybe uh, it's a broken link. link. But I, and, well, it's you know, it's. I'm gonna yeah. put. I'm gonna submit something on the blog. You, yeah, you, we, please we have do. A broken please link. do. Um, uh, I think it's. I think it's a. It's a line break that's that's messed it up. So let me paste the full link in, and there we go. Food safety talk 25, entitled Two Little Superheroes: Mangoes and Cantaloupes." Oh. Um, yeah, um, which is a reference to uh, Ben's sons, uh, the two little superheroes. Um, and uh, yeah, and basically, uh, we link to an article on the f- the safety of organic food from uh, from Stanford University and and basically what what they what the, this person was doing was they're basically looking for, and I can't I can't quite figure out what the angle is right, they're looking right. for they're looking for a way to promote 
their content, which is, of course, whenever you're contacted by these people, you, you, they're looking for ways for you to link to their content. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm, we're not going to do it. Um, but I did fix the broken link back to the original content. But, but, uh, anyway, basically the, 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 the essence is that they've created a, um, uh, a blog post on organic food and whether it's actually better for you or not. And I guess they were hoping for us to update, um, a, the show notes from a podcast from 2012 with a link to their content. And I'm not going to do it. Um, but, but I do appreciate the pointing out the broken link. So, uh, it's, a, I, you know, there, uh, somebody must be making money off of that website, but I can't quite figure out why a private health insurance company in Australia is looking to market their web content, except maybe to drive people to their website so they can sell them private health insurance. I don't know. We will, we will, we will link to the, their main website. Um, not, not an endorsement, but, um, because I don't think that, you know, it's, we're not really, um, I'm not sure that we're really doing anything. You know, I don't think too many of our listeners are going to sign up for private health insurance with a company in Australia. Maybe, um, maybe our Australian listeners will. Maybe, but yeah. they all have uh, good. I mean, you know, the Australian listeners that I know are all really happy. Or Australian friends, friends of ours that live in Australia, are all really happy with the free coverage that they get. It's, so, yeah, I, it's very bizarre. I also, um, I think, if the this person listens to the podcast, I just searched their website and not nowhere. Is there a mention of food safety talk? So, um, huh. Huh. so they well. should, should probably include that on there somewhere. There um, um, so we, we also, while we're talking about this, uh, we also have a request um, <laughs> from somebody from a blog uh, who says that they've been working on tips and suggestions for how to make cleaning easier and its importance to one's health. And uh, they have an article entitled uh, a, a Guide to Food Safety and Kitchen Cleanup, which if you click on the link takes you to a website for a cleaning building services company in New York City. Yes. Which is which we will link to because just because it's freaking bizarre. It's weird. It's totally um, weird. It's I, I again, I don't think I understand how the internet works anymore, Ben. Um but but yeah, apparently here's a website uh, for a company that I guess it's, I guess it's about creating, I guess it's, it's all about gaming Google searches, right? I, I, I yeah, well, and given, given that it is about that, maybe we're, maybe we're not going to link to them. Yeah. I don't think we should, I don't, I don't think we want to link to them, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. So I'm not, I'm going to delete this page from our notes, but it's bizarre. I, yeah, yeah it's very weird. The, anyway, it's a, if you put a website up, up there that apparently gets some traffic, people want to want you to link to them. I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to just highlight from this website cause it's a bit weird. Um, mm. when I went and looked at it this morning, so they have a section on cleaning up the kitchen. Mm. Um, and I'm going to just read, this is, this is not, I'm not jumping around. For a deeper clean, for a deeper clean. <laughs> so what you, what yeah. you're saying is you're reading verbatim from this well-written, uh, carefully researched article. Correct. Correct. For a deeper clean, the surfaces can even be washed with a diluted chemical mixture of one tablespoon bleach and one gallon of water. All cooking appliances used when preparing the meal should also be washed thoroughly inside and out. An important step that most people tend to forget about is cleaning out your refrigerator. <laughs> Just, I don't even think that that makes sense. Um, and so, Don, did you know you should be going through your refrigerator once a week to discard any expired items to prevent growing bacteria? I, uh. I did not know that, no. Uh. 
Um, you should always clean your hands thoroughly after touching raw meats. Vegetables and fruits should also be rinsed underwater before being consumed to get rid of any pesticides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, keep, I mean, please, the listeners who are listening, keep sending us stuff. And then the people that don't listen and think that we have a blog, keep sending us stuff too because it is does give us fodder for the blog. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I saw something I, it's not I didn't put it here in show notes, but something came across my desk in the last couple of weeks with uh, basically a website that will basically using, um, you know, um, whatever artificial intelligence will, will generate articles, um, ah. which was uh, yeah, it was, was quite bizarre. Oh, hey, speaking of OK, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm going off the board. OK, speaking of artificial intelligence, did you read The New York Times? Um, uh, uh, piece this weekend on artificial intelligence and nutrition and no. diet. No. All right. So we'll link to this. Essentially, it's really kind of interesting. So it is um, in, um, yeah, it was from this weekend. It's called the AI Diet, um, an opinion piece from somebody. Um, Eric Topol. A- Eric a Topol. Cardiologist. Cardiologist. So anyway, talks about. Um, putting a whole bunch of inputs in on things that he eats and um, like getting a whole bunch of categories. So I, I'm not going to go into the intricacies, but one of the things that he highlighted was he was supposed to, the, the AI told him that he was supposed to, um, uh, where is it? Um, supposed to eat a whole bunch of uh, strawberries. And um, so the, the the article says, we don't often think of a diet as being unsafe, but the wrong foods can be dangerous, dangerous for people with certain risks or conditions. I've had two bouts of kidney stones. To avoid a third, I need to stay away from foods high in oxalate, naturally occurring molecule abundant in plants. But if you look at the recommendations for my personalized diet, many um, like nuts and strawberries are high in oxalate. It's a big miscue because my pre-existing medical conditions were not one of the test inputs. And so I thought that like... I, I thought that was kind of an interesting take on. All right, so let's use let's use big data. Let's use artificial intelligence to give cues. Let's look like this is good for you. Eat more things, but but you, it's only those predictions and those messages are only as good as all the inputs. And so, as he highlights, there was stuff that wasn't even asked about that that he's been recommended by his doctor to avoid that were high on his list of things he should eat. So AI is only is only as good as uh, as everything that goes into it. So anyway, it was kind of cool. Yeah, and I think the the article that I was thinking of, um, it looks like it's from uh, uh, not quite a year ago, um, and it was published in Forbes, and the article is entitled "AI May Have Written This Article, But Is That Such a Bad Thing?" So we will we will link to uh, we will link to that article as well. Cool, cool, cool. Um, do you want to uh, you want to talk about uh, farmers markets? Yes, let's do that. All right. So this is. Um, this is from Deep Chapin Jr. And there's there's history to this. So Deep Chapin Jr. writes, and if you're um, if you're a, another uh, Chapin, you may be interested in this. Um, uh, hey y'all, have been enjoying the podcast for a while now. Thanks for doing what you do. I get to do a lot of work with small scale vegetable farmers, many of whom sell at farmers markets. And I was wondering your repo- um, thoughts on this report. And the report that he links to is actually a news article from um, Penn State's news that um, that was linked that was um, generated by a study that 
uh, Kathy Cutter uh, was part of on um, food safety at farmers markets. And so we'll we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but the um, the question that that Deep Chapin Jr. asked about is. In particular, this section. In the study, researchers checked select samples of leafy green produce and meat obtained from farmers markets in Pennsylvania for the presence of hygiene indicators, coliforms, fecal coliforms, listeria, and E. coli, and found cause for concern. E. coli was present in 40%, 20 of 50 beef samples, and 18%, 19 of 50 pork samples, and in 28%, 15 of 54 kale samples. Um, and then 29% of lettuce samples, 17% of spinach samples. They found listeria in 8% of beef samples uh, and in uh, you know smaller amounts in, in other ones. So his question is, I'm still getting my feet wet in the food safety world, but I'm wondering two things. Is finding the presence of E. coli on those products the same as finding harmful E. coli? And is there any research done on how high or low risk it is for a farmer's market produce vendor to be touching cash while selling produce? Um, and so, so he asked uh, you answer that question. So why don't you uh, take a stab at it? Yeah. So, so, and we, and he also sent us some follow up and linked to some other articles, which we, which we will talk about as well. So, so my answer is that finding generic E. coli is certainly not as risky as finding pathogenic E. coli. But based on what we know about indicator organisms, um, and indicator organisms are those organisms that, just like you might guess from the name, would indicate. The possibility that a pathogen might be there either in that sample or at some similar sample in the future. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about indi indicators and their value. Um, I'm I'm a believer that they are valuable, but you have to realize that they're not a perfect indicator. But but it does, you know, if you're thinking about risk, the fact that you found generic E. coli, um, that certainly does um, in my mind, if you find generic E. coli, that's a higher risk than if you didn't find it. And, and again, it, it really matters like whether you find it repeatedly over time. You know, one, you're not going to make a decision based on one sample, but it's certainly never a good thing when you find E. coli in, in food because it, it shouldn't be there if the food is, you know, being properly handled. And if, especially it shouldn't be there if the food is not going to be cooked. If you cook the food, obviously, um, that will help uh, to manage that risk. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so so certainly there's there's a risk there from finding generic E. coli. Um, the um, in terms of handling cash, you know, this is interesting. I had a, a graduate student come to me, uh, not my student, but this was a student who needed basically some extra credit work um, in our graduate program. And I said, hey, you know, why don't you? And I thought I first I gave her one thing to write about. I said, you know, that's kind of boring. That's sort of similar to the work you're doing already. Let's do something completely different. Um, and let's do a literature review on microorganisms on money because I, people study this from time to time. And she went. And she did a really nice job. And I think ultimately um, it could be published. It's just, you know, one of the dozens of manuscripts on my list of things to edit where I'm the rate limiting step. Um, but, but, you know, it is, it is, it is an interesting topic and a lot of people have studied, um, microorganisms on money. And I would say my answer is, and I certainly there are people that get very upset when people handle money and then they handle food. I am not one of those people. Uh, money does have microorganisms on it, but remember, in, well, and, and in my opinion, money is dry. Um, uh, and so if you're handling dry money with dry hands, um, you know, there's a little, there's not much, there's a risk of transfer, but there's not much of a risk of transfer. And then if you're handling foods, well, again, you, you shouldn't be, um, because of, you know, uh, food code rules, you really 
shouldn't be handling foods with your bare hands. You should be putting on gloves um, uh, or using utensils. Um, and I guess obviously, you know, so so the, the question is, is it is that risk of that food becoming contaminated being amplified by the person handling money first? And I would say not really. I mean, the, the, the adding the money into the equation doesn't uh, affect the risk so much as just the the practice in general of handling foods with your bare hands. So I I don't think that the, the the money angle is particularly risky. But again, this is something that people care about, and obviously it was one of the things that they that they mentioned in the uh, in the the Kathy Cutter's Food Protection Trends article. Yeah, um, I think the the money thing is kind of kind of interesting. We did some work a while ago um, on this and and saw quite a bit of like doing observations that. Um, at uh, farmers markets and didn't publish it in um, an article, but but wrote a book chapter and highlighted some of this stuff for a book that um, Judy um, Harrison and um, Renee Boyer co-edited. Um, and so I think I can link to that. Uh, but we saw a lot of handling of money um, mm-hmm. at, at, by vendors and not and without any any hand washing. So it's it's a really like. It's a common common practice. It was just so like almost everybody um, is, is doing it, um, and there, I, I agree with you. It's it's kind of one of these things where it there you could could you have survival of pathogens on money? Absolutely. Um, and your point of does it transfer really well um, is is probably no. And even if it even if it did, would we is money handling something that you would worry about all the time or would you worry about it? I would only worry about it in times where we have like more risk of norovirus anyway. And all hand contact would be would be suspect, whether it's to money or or something else. So like I would worry about more in the times when we actually aren't at the farmer's market because we see more norovirus in the winter than we do in the in the summer anyway. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. It's just not, not one of those things that I really worry about, um, risk wise too much. Yeah. And, and let me, and let me just also say, if you are writing an article where you're talking about a peer reviewed publication, you owe it to your readers. And I'm looking at you specifically Penn state, um, um, uh, press, press release people. Um, you owe it to the readers to, uh, link to the actual article and which, which they're not doing. And I'm having trouble finding the article and I would really like to link to it, uh, because that's the primary research. So anyway, um, let's work on, work on that Penn state. Yeah, that that's really bizarre. Well, no, it's a seems to be a common practice, and people just don't don't bother to do it. So, I mean, and you've given me enough information so I can find it, right? You, okay, it's food protection trends November first, but now I have to go find it. Right. Well, and I think I mean just as an aside, we've talked about um, my my favorite public information officer, guy who makes me look good, Matt Shipman. Matt Shipman. Um, and he is always. Like he puts the full abstract in and links to the article and wants to drive um, people to to that peer reviewed publication, right? Like one, wants the go read the rest of this for exactly. for you know, for more info about it. So, um, cool. So, um, so we got that. Um, um, there's some other stuff in here. Uh, something called the. Uh, Via via Don's uh, via Don's uh, lovely wife, which I want to talk about. 
Um, so this is uh, a list that was in uh, – I can't tell what, what the publication is, but it's something called Vulture Lists, I guess from Vulture.com. And uh, it is a guide to British rural detective dramas <laughs> ranked by their alarming murder per capita rates. And I want to also highlight that I would like a follow-up to this. So, that, so anyway, they go through all of, the, all of your favorites, Don. They go through Grant Chester and Father Brown and DCI Banks, Happy Valley, um, uh, Inspector Morse, uh, Vera, uh, Inspector George Gently, uh, Midsummer Murders, which is Midsummer Murders, not Midsummer, um, and uh, says, you know, sort of breaks down what's the likely uh, you know, number of murders uh, uh, based on uh, how, what the population is. But I, but I want to highlight that what is missing from this article is just the, the greatest, uh, um, what I would really like to rank as a follow-up, was, which is the best pictures of sullen-looking detectives standing in in uh, out in a field or on the moors or in a in, in the greenery of uh, of Great Britain which is my favorite part of all British journals or British um, uh, detective dramas yeah, and there's there's a great it's a great photo uh, from uh, Grantchester with the uh, uh, the, the priest uh, character um, walking uh, next to the other guy, and it looks like he's just been in a fight. And his face is all banged up. So anyway, uh, yeah. So that was a little that was a brief digression out of the world of food safety, but it does kind of relate to statistics. And I love you know I love that you know somebody thought about uh, actually ranking uh, you know murder rate per capita uh, because it will you know obviously if you uh, if these are a rural a rural dramas, um, uh, you're going to have, um, you know, uh, a high murder rate for these these small and picturesque, uh, tiny uh, locations. Exactly, and everyone will look sullen, and uh, it'll be gray all the time. Um, okay, so I have a question for you, Don. Um, how many times do you have to slap a chicken to cook it? Um, a whole lot, Ben. Oh man, how many? Of course, I looked at this earlier. Now the link doesn't work. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. If you click, if you have, if you click on the link, you have to you have to actually uh, get rid of the space because it. When yeah. I create the PDF, it it makes uh, it makes that, the. Got the whole, that. Yeah, you I to. just googled it. Okay. I just googled it. So, um, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting. Um, this this it's an interesting question in Wired, and so it takes takes the uh the sense of um could you cook a chicken by slapping it um and uh the recent this recent meme may not sound like a good physics question at first glance but it is in fact a great question um in fact i thought i'd answered it i'd already answered it back in 2011 i looked into the possibility of cooking a turkey by dropping it and really (laughs) it has to do with um, cooking is heating and the fact that when you slap something you have some thermal um, transfer. And so the, there's a really kind of fun calculation um, for this. And so it, <laughs> here's here's the quick answer. It's about 49,000 slaps at a very high slap speed to, <laughs> to get it to 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so here's your, here's your homework that comes from the Wired story. And again, um, the uh, author, this is Rhett, um, Rhett Elaine, um, who writes for, for Wired, uh, basically says, suppose you slap your chicken once every second and you want to start eating at 6 p.m., what time should you start, start slapping? 
so then we have to uh, calculate how many thousand, uh, you know, how many, how long it is before your 49,000, 49,000 slap. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, it, it's kind of a fun thing. So it, the question that we got from uh, one of our listeners, um, deep, deep chicken slapper, um, <laughs> is, is I just thought you guys would enjoy this. If you didn't already see it, slapping your meat does not seem like a safe cooking me- method. And no, say, not not safe for a couple of reasons. Number one, because you're going to be spreading contamination all over the kitchen, um, and number two, because it doesn't really work. Because <laughs> because I don't have I don't have forty nine thousand questions or seconds in between now and dinner time that I could just slap. Uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty hilarious. Uh, I do love that that um, the author goes says things like, "Okay, I now I know you don't agree with my assumptions." <laughs> So here's my here's my Python calculation. So you can change the values and rerun it. So anyway, it's kind of show your work. Yep, gotta show your work. Um, I yeah. So I want. I mean, it's just uh, it's one of those things where it would be great. I would I would eat a chicken that had been slapped to one sixty five. <laughs> if I didn't have to do it, if I didn't have to do the slapping, and someone said what. T- how much, uh, like, and they were selling a, a slap chicken on their menu that they said guaranteed to one slap to one sixty five. I'd eat it. <laughs> Would you eat it? Yeah. Well, if you get it to one sixty five, it doesn't matter how you. Well, here's the thing, Ben. Um, if you cook a chicken in the oven, it creates certain organoleptic uh, properties. You can also get a chicken to one sixty five in the microwave, but microwave chicken is horrible. Um, because it doesn't give that crispiness. And I suspect that if you were to slap a chicken to 165, um, it might be more like a microwave chicken than it would be like an oven cooked chicken. So I, I think I might decline on for quality reasons. Well, yeah. And, and, um, red, Elaine says cooking does more to chicken than just t- changing temperature, but let's gloss over that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is great. I think it's good. You just, it's like, it's like my whiskey question, right? It's like, uh, here's a good question. Someone can help answer this. And so he did it. Um, oh, that's good. Um, other things. Well, you want to yeah. talk about, um, or open source food safety? Yes, I do. Uh, so, so this is, uh, this comes from a, uh, a person that says you can read my message, but not my name. Um, and, uh, he's a regulator, so we'll call him uh, deep reg. And he says, uh, as a regulator reviewing a variance request, I was looking for some guidance on HACCP plans for curing meat at retail. And I came across this website and we will link to it. It's called opensourcefoodsafety.org. Uh, and he says they do have a few HACCP plans published for downloading on the web uh, on the website. The information does look okay at first glance. Um, is open source something that can be woven into the existing fabric of information that is extension regulators and organizations like AFTO? And then he gives a bunch of different uh, links to some already existing uh, university websites, and he, he links to the amazing uh, nichemeatprocessing.org, and he links to your NC State – I think it's your NC State retail HASA page. Yep. Um, some stuff from University of Wisconsin. So yeah. So what are what are your what are your thoughts on open source food safety? I think this is a really cool starting point. And so last week I was in um, Reno, Nevada for Nevada. I can't believe I just mispronounced it. Um, Nevada for uh, a retail HACCP uh, validation verification course. And so we put on um, a uh, 
two back-to-back two-day courses and a train-the-trainer for um, some folks in Nevada, in Washoe County, and a whole bunch of different counties um, about retail HACCP. And one of the as – I, as I teach this course um, and, I've, and, and I've seen, I don't know, like 800 or 1,000 retail HACCP plans in the last six or seven years, um, one of the biggest problems that, that I think uh, it presents itself – when reviewing these plans and especially talking to operators is that they can start with a template, but if they just grab a template directly from, um, you know, something like, uh, open, uh, open source food safety and, and don't actually follow what the template says that they're like promising to do, it all kind of falls apart. And that's, so, you know, using the template, just as a template is is great, and like I said, it's a great starting point. The other thing that I've that I've seen um, in working with um, environmental health specialists on retail HACCP is that what where often things fall apart in the inspection process is when someone wrote a plan who had never stepped into the kitchen, and um, and I could see that this being this being a case where they didn't really get a sense of what was happening in that facility, wrote a plan, and it, again, falls apart because it's not it, – it doesn't use the same equipment that they're, um, that they're equipped with. It doesn't have the same flow, all of those different things. So, so I'm, I'm a big fan of open source, and I'm a big fan – actually, really, we've used this, um, this website as a, as a starting point, um, but I, I, I want to make sure that we all – you know, people that are using it – understand that this is a good, um, it's a good starting point. And the, the other thing is with open source, it, what we're really talking about are in HACCP plans are, um, just a, uh, th- th- these have sort of not all of the features of what we would look for in a HACCP plan. They go through, a. a um, a product flow. They talk about hazard analysis. Um, it gives you, um, you know, senses of critical control points um, and critical limits. But not all of this is is supported with um, like any of the prerequisite programs that they would need. that are outside of, in my world, the food code. So, like in one of these, they talk about um, uh, it, um, uh, where is this? Like it, it, a lot of it's time temperature stuff, but if they were to use one of these that focuses on um, fermentation, where using a, a pH meter, you would need to have some extra work beyond the just the the simple sheet of um, plan of uh, how someone how you would train an employee to use a pH meter. How do you calibrate those pH meters and, and stuff like that? So so I'm like you know like I said I'm a, I think it's a really great start and I. I'm really jazzed that people are just sharing these because um, some companies pay a lot of money uh, to develop these, uh, so it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. But um, it it becomes just a, a like a very a very good starting point. Yeah, and you know, and and the you know, free is good, right? Uh, open source is good, free is good, but you kind of get what you pay for, right? And if you don't, if you don't, if you do know what you're doing. Um, it can be great to have these as a starting point. If you don't know what you're doing, it's really 
risky, right? Um, and just the same as if you didn't know what you're doing and you hired a consultant, right? And the consultant just like you said, the consultant gave you X and said, here's a th- here's a thing. I do I do food safety. Here's a, here's your plan. And you put the plan on the shelf and you you know you half ass your way through using it. Um, and that's it. And that and that's a bad thing, right? So so yeah. So I think I think we're we're on the same page there. We're both in agreement that it's a good thing, but you have to be you have to really you have to do your due diligence and make sure that it really does apply. Yeah. I, in, before we leave this one in, in doing these courses over the last four or five years, I really like having industry people in the courses because they're legitimately there trying to learn how to make these. And it's better than having a consultant who does a really good job at writing plans for other people. Um, because they're, they are really like reasoning through their process. And so, I think I could see this I could see open source food safety being a really good resource for those chefs, those um uh you know commissary um uh manager folks who say okay, I know I understand what we're making. I'm trying to get a little more information about how to how to document this and how to go through uh has a process and if they if they came with this in hand as a starting point then they would know kind of where they want to get to um and that's really that's really key right like it's it's good to to have this as a um as a as a something that you're pointing to the, at the end yeah, agreed, agreed. And and just before we we we've already moved off the topic of farmers markets, but I do I do just want to to mention that we will also link to um, the uh, a couple more articles uh, provided by um, uh, Deep Chapin Jr. Um, uh, basically, two two other articles. Uh, one is a recap essentially, and the other is a rebuttal. Um, and so we'll we'll link to both of those articles. And apparently apparently uh, Deep Chapin Jr. This is a reference. Um, that is uh, so people are now using our show to provide inside jokes to other people who listen to our show that's that that, that make no sense to you or I. So um, <laughs> yeah. and I want to say I want to say that I'm in favor of this. So please do continue to do so. I think this is called like third space or something, right? <laughs> is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. It's breaking the fourth wall. They're breaking the fourth wall. They're in the third space. It's community building that's ex- that's existing. Um, and, uh, we, we are just happen to be the, the backdrop for the community, but we're not even in the third place or third space or whatever it is. <laughs> never, never go, uh, to a third place, to a third place with a hippie. Isn't that what they say in Roderick on the line? That's what they say. Never go. Exactly. Um, so, <clears throat> Hey, I, I sent you some homework yesterday and I think you did the homework. I did do the homework. And, and so this, this homework came up. Um, from from my uh, my lovely wife um, Danielle, who over the last week has said she's you know I've mentioned that she's really into podcasts, which is great. She's not into this podcast at all, like your my it's podcast fine. and your podcast. Fine. We're doing we're doing fine without her. Yeah, she's, we, she's have, we have plenty of listeners, despite what she said on episode one. Yeah, exactly. And she's 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 very now she understands the people who are not shut ins listen to podcasts. Um, and so she's got a whole bunch of her favorites. Most uh, we talked about this in the past. Anyway, she sent me a link to a podcast this week on um, the history of um, uh, MSG in This American Life, and it's uh, a um, uh, what's it called? It is called The Long Fuse, episode six sixty eight of This American Life, and. 
It's a really, it was a real, I was, I was out for a run yesterday cause I'm trying to run across North, uh, South Carolina again in three weeks. And, uh, I ran, uh, just over five miles and on half of the run, I listened to this story about, um, the history of, uh, of MSG and what, where, um, are like thoughts around MSG is bad and MSG free that you can still see came from. And as you said in your message back to me, um, as you were listening to it, it's a turns out or a double turns out and maybe it's a triple turns out. Triple turns out. Yep. Um, so, so anyway, this go, go check out this, this podcast. I'm not going to spoil too much other than saying there, it's a really good, um, it starts off kind of being like, oh, there's maybe a problem with peer reviewed, uh, papers, um, where someone could just like make something up and do it as a hoax to, well, no, maybe it wasn't really a hoax and it's kind of real. Um, but the turns out was the hoax that someone was claiming was a hoax was, was the hoax itself. Um, <laughs> and, but, but it, it's, it, it, it circles in our world because, um, the, you know, MSG has been pointed to as a, a food safety issue. And, um, and, and it really comes down to this, um, this article that was, um, or this letter to the editor, um, in 1969, um, that, uh, that said, um, and I'll, I'll read from the letter for several years. I've been in this country. I've experienced a strange syndrome whenever I've eaten out in a Chinese restaurant, the syndrome, which usually begins 15 to 20 minutes after I've eaten the first dish lasts for about two hours without any hangover effect. The most prominent symptoms are numbness at the back of the neck. And then, you know, anyway, goes through it um, and basically says, well, it must be the MSG. And um, it was signed by Robert Homan Kwok MD. Um, and so that it, the, the, mystery around MSG or mystery around um, what what some have called the Chinese uh, restaurant syndrome has proved to be a pretty problematic and racist approach to food safety um, has been debunked with a lot of science since then uh, but it still remained in our in our pop culture so go go check out this this uh, um, this podcast how did what did you think about it yeah, I thought it. I thought it was good. Um, it brought up, and, and uh, again, we probably. Uh, I, I was trying to decide whether you know how much how much we were going to spoil this, but I guess uh, we don't have to spoil it. But I do have some things I'd like to say. So first of all, I think that there is a difference between the medical literature and the scientific literature, and so the scientific literature has a history of publishing essentially what are called case reports. Um, which is like imagine an experiment with an N of one, right? right and right. that's a case report. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to um, bash on, um, you know, the way the medical literature works. There's a value in, in case reports, right? And there's a value in, in uh, observations with an N of one because um, sometimes that's how you, you know, get – you create hypotheses and you design experiments, right? So you, you start with that. So, um, so, so that, that's the first sort of takeaway message. The second takeaway message is something that I often tell my graduate students, which is you should go and read the article. Right. Like don't don't read what someone said about the article. Go and find the article and then read the article and then don't even trust what the authors say the data say. Right. Look at the data yourself and then critique that. And, and think about whether it makes sense. Think about whether they've done the appropriate experimental controls. I mean, we're, 
I've got a, um, a PhD student of mine who's surveying the literature, uh, you know, doing essentially one of these meta-analysis type papers where we look at the literature for salmonella uh, survival or, or bacterial survival in dry foods. Um, and, you know, again, there, there's everybody does an experiment in a different way. Some people report certain things. Some people don't report things. Um, some people control for things. Some people don't control for things. And we're going to put all that together and try to make some sense out of it. But part of making sense out of it is figuring out what people may have measured or not measured or controlled for or not controlled for. And all of that is really important. And so I think so often stu students, when they're first starting out in science, they think about something as being, oh my gosh, it was in a scientific paper. It must be true. And I've seen enough papers, I reviewed enough for papers, and I've, I've made enough mistakes of papers of my own to know that, no, it's not perfect, right? Scientists are people and, and we make mistakes and eventually those mistakes get corrected. But in the meantime, stuff exists in the literature that might be wrong or might be missing critical information. And so so be skeptical. Be skeptical. When you read a paper, um, be skeptical. When that paper says that another paper says something, be skeptical of that. When you go back and you read the original paper and the original paper says something, be skeptical of that, right? Tr don't trust anything. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, at some point, you have to trust that something exists, or you'll you'll spend all your time, you know, taking everything back to first principles. But but the idea of being skeptical of what exists and what even what's been published, I think, is a useful uh, is a useful trait. And and don't and don't be afraid to question, you know, what what appears to be the dogma, uh, because because sometimes you might make a discovery and you might learn something. Well, yeah, and, and just to add on to that, not don't be afraid to question. Um, be, for, for lots of reasons. I, I think t sometimes we don't want to ask the question because we don't want to be perceived as not knowing. Like if it's a really simple answer, we don't want to be perceived as like not knowing that simple answer. And, and often the, that's not, it's not the case, right? Like it, it w once we dig into some of these, um, these, these questions and not being, especially in the peer reviewed process where you don't get to see everyone's work. And I think we're getting better at that, but, um, to be able to be like, Hey, could, how did you make that recommendation or how did you arrive at that conclusion? Um, and could you tell me more about it and would it have changed if you had seen this and this and this, um, is something that I think is really valuable being on both sides of that, right? Like being someone who asked that question, but also being receiving that question to be able to get a better inside of someone else looking at the, the approach that, that you took. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just value your, your, your words in, um, be, be skeptical and ask questions. And now you don't have to ask questions at like, just to ask a question at a conference. We've already covered that in previous food safety talks. Um, but if you have a legitimate, like, Hey, tell me why you did it this way. Um, and not a, well, this is more of a comment than a question. Um, I think we, we really need to continue to, to do that. And that was, I mean, going back to my, my bourbon, um, whiskey, uh, story at the start of the podcast, it's exactly where this food service operators at. They're like, we just don't, no one's been able to answer why, or no one's been able to give us data to show us about safety. So, so why don't we, what, like, what are we missing something or can we, can we actually find a better, like a more complete answer to it? And that's it's the only way that we, we progress this stuff. So yeah. Um, it was, it, I, yeah, it was, it was a cool, it was a cool story to, to think about, um, to, you know, to think about that, that scientific and peer reviewed process and yeah. case study process. 
Yeah. And so for sure, check out uh, the, the, this American life. I've never heard of that. Is that a podcast? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess it maybe, I don't know the guy, the guy's, his delivery is kind of annoying. It is. But, it's uh, true. It's a, yeah, it's, I think it's a, not, it's, a, it's not what they call, it's a radio show. It's one of those radio shows. Not, not familiar with his work. <laughs> um, but uh, also you had, you had uh, put this in the, in the uh, Dropbox, uh, which is an, uh, a, an article from 538. Um, entitled "How MSG Got a Bad Rap: Flawed Science and Xenophobia," which, if you if you you know if you're not listening to a podcast and you want to look at a really nicely written article with tons of links, thank yeah. you so much, Five Thirty Eight, for understanding how to link back to the primary literature. Um, really, real or at least link to things that are yeah other other articles. But but geez, yeah, good good work, um, um, uh, Five Thirty Eight for for having a nice nice article that tells a good story with a, a lot of a lot of a lot of links so well, thanks for that so okay so i, I had some th- yeah absolutely um i had some selfishness of asking you this question uh-huh yeah yeah so so this i i have talked about um doing this study on poultry washing in our observation kitchens and um i think i know the history of why we p- tell people not to to wash poultry but i think there's a bunch of messages out there or a bunch of numbers and a bunch of things that that we take for granted as magical, and I'll put Richard fingers up in, again for that. Whether it's pH of four point two or pH of four point six or one sixty five, I'd really like that. Listening to that um, twenty minute discussion on the long fuse made me think about wanting, and I. It's not that we have time to do this, but I want someone to investigate. And tell the story about how we got to 165 for poultry and why it's different in Canada at 180. Like I know you and I talk about this, but I want to, I want, I want to like, a, I want a narrative from start to finish on on these things. And I don't know how to like how to do that, or if if we can, um, if us just talking about it will generate some interest in one of our listeners to go start their own podcast to do that or to work with a librarian to search some of the history about some of these messages. But I, I'd be, I would listen to that podcast. I'd listen to more food safety history stuff. And I know we used to have a segment on it, but it wasn't built the same way as like a, this American life kind of, kind of story. And I really enjoyed listening to that, to the narrative. Like it, it, it painted a, a nice episodic, like here's a story when, when it almost like um, the, uh, I can't remember what the um, B-Box uh, episode of Dubai Friday, but if you haven't listened to that, um, it is uh, uh, our friend of the show, Max Temkin, does a really great job with an audio documentary similar to the style of Serial deconstructing a listener's question of a mystery of a video that he saw 25 years ago. and But it, it's just a nice, like, I like that. I I think it would provide a good um, entry point into some of this food safety history for listeners. And uh, it's a, it's a different way to tell stories than what we do. I don't, I don't want to do it. I want someone else to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly part of that story would be the uh, NACMIF um, article from 2006, I think consumer guidelines for safe cooking of poultry products. That was a, a NACMIF that I was part of that, that basically tried to, to figure out 
um, you know, or tried to correct maybe what some of the the current the what the what the at the time the USDA directions were because they were really there for for quality, not for not for safety. And so, um, trying to I'm trying to find that the actual JFP article, but uh, I'm not I'm not finding that immediately in the for, to to link to in show notes. But we will we will find it and we will link to it um, because it's it's it, it's again it's at least it doesn't it's not the story. It's a it's a point. It's a time point in the story, but. Um, um, uh, I think it's it's probably worth uh, probably worth uh, including in that. Oh, I, and I did I did find stalled long enough. I did Good find time. the actual um, uh, JFP article. So I, I think uh, you should look to all of the NACMIF reports <laughs> and recommendations because it's like there's a bunch of interesting stuff there. Um, also, I have yep. a NACMIF question for you. Sure. Why is it not NACMIF? It's NACMIF. People don't pronounce that second C. Yes. Why, um, why is that? I don't know. Well, there's um, it was, there's a podcast in that, right? There, there's a podcast. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, but, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, that's I, I was that was what it was called. That's how people always said it. And so, and then why do why do we say NACMIF and yet we spell out uh, ICMSF? I don't know. Um, you know, these are these are important questions. Why, why do we say FSIS and not FISIS? FISIS, right? FISIS. And how come it's FISMA instead of FSMA? It, uh, this is all right. So <laughs> now we need like a linguistics person as well to get involved in this to to yeah. study the history of these things. Well, and yeah, and it, anyway, I I I appreciate you looking to um, the NACMIF reports. I, I I think you're you're right. These are this is all part of that story, and and it would make for I would listen like someone who's teaching undergraduate food microbiology might just want to make all these podcasts and make that their class. And, and that would be, someone should do that. <laughs> well, and you know, the other thing too, that came up and we've talked about this before on the podcast as well. And this kind of relates to the 165, um, is what about, um, what, where do we get five log reduction from? Right. right? And, and, and there was a very good, uh, article that was not an ACMIF article, but it was an ILSI article. Uh, I guess that's a, one of the ones that you say, not, not spell I L S I, um, uh, basically on five log reduction for, for peanuts and other articles. And again, that's just been, been one that, um, I was part of. And so it's, it's one that, that comes to my mind is like, well, um, oh yeah, here it is. It's, uh, issues to consider when setting intervention targets with limited data for low moisture food commodities, a peanut case study. And we basically come, you know, discuss about like why five logs. And it's like, well, it's, we're just sort of comfortable with it. I mean, ultimately that it's a risk management, again, to, just to re recap another famous theme of this show, it's a risk management decision. It's, it's five is not as safe as six, but it's safer than four. And depending upon what your tolerance for risk is and your willingness to, you know, uh, to make people sick, I've, I've been, I've been called out by regular regulatory people for not saying for saying that willing your willingness to make people sick but you know, ultimately that's, that's the way what it, it is that's what it makes sense that's the way it makes sense to me so anyway but it's it's the your willingness to make one person sick out of whatever you pick <laughs> right exactly yeah um yeah well and and the the way that i explain the the five log versus seven log versus you know six and a half log is part of that decision comes with looking at what are you starting with, right? And then building in some factors of safety involved in that. What's your worst case scenario of contamination? But even that is a person decision, right? Like, like we, we, we're only going with what we know 
that's been published or the work that's already been done to even make that decision, to get our, our best guess of what's the worst case. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is, there's, there's something to this. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that podcast so much that someone else needs to make another one. And cause it's all about me, Don, Don. it's all about the things I want to listen to. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wanted to have a podcast about food safety and so I made one, but I'm, made I'm one. done. Yeah. I'm, this is, this is a battle I can handle. Right. Right. That's, oh yeah. But, but speaking, speaking of podcasts, uh, I do want to, I do want to plug uh, another podcast that is not our podcast. Um, and that is uh, a podcast called Roboism. Have you, uh, have you ever listened to the podcast Roboism? No, but is this the podcast that, um, uh, that Alex Cox does? It is. Yeah, it no, is. I haven't listened uh, to it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great podcast. Podcast. And the reason why I listen to the and I've I've subscribed to it for a while. Sorry, sorry, Alex, if you're listening, I've subscribed for a while, but I have not listened. It's a delightful podcast, and Alex is just a delightful person, and she's got a wonderful co-host as well. Um, and so the 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 podcast is called Roboism, and it's uh, robots, isms, and tech, but mostly robots. And uh, the episode that I'm talking about is um, uh, episode 28, which is entitled "Normie Toilet," and they talk about some of these like super fancy fancy high-end uh, toilets. And so, you know, toilets, that's uh, right in right in our wheelhouse here on Food Safety Talk because uh, poop um, and, and you know, that's important to keep that out of food. And the way you keep it out of food is you put it into a toilet. So, yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's only 33 minutes. It's it's really nice and really fun. They don't spend the whole time talking about toilets. But, um, yeah, it's just it's, – it's, it's, a, it's a fun podcast. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and Alex's co-host is named Savannah Million, and apparently that's her real name. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, the so on these really super expensive toilets, have we ever talked about um, toilets that then take your poop and try to isolate pathogens from it, and see if you're like we have we. That's come up, right? Well, I th- I want to say it. It has. I certainly think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Right. So uh, there's got to be poop. I'm like poop isolate toilets. We must. I must have read something out there on this because I think it's a. Um, it's kind of fascinating. Uh. Well, and what what is what has occurred to me before is you know I, I mean Ben when somebody has diarrhea I don't know if you've noticed this and apologies if you are listening to this podcast while you are eating lunch or or some other meal. Um, uh, you know, when people have diarrhea, their poop smells different, I think. Yeah, um, I know. I and know so yeah. why can't we – I mean I know why we can't because it would be expensive. But we should have little sensors that sit in toilets and sniff the air and basically tell you when people have diarrhea. And and if you had that in every toilet everywhere, it would be cre- super creepy. But we <laughs> it would give us information about outbreaks. And then, right. and then you could have toilets that are sampling for norovirus and salmonella and Imagine the data, Ben. Imagine the data. Well, see that—that's the thing. Is and w- what's your, what's our expected number of salmonella poops in a day, and in, uh, in a public bathroom? Well, and, what's your what's your denominator, right? Right, right. What's in, and then like being able to find both of those things, and then say, okay, now we got more salmonella poops. So there's something else. Oh, there's some. There's more salmonella than than planned. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I'm in. I'm into this. I think this is a good idea. And okay. I. I feel like we I feel like we've talked about it. And if we haven't, we shouldn't. And I hope I'm I hope we're like um articulating it well enough. It's like your your toilet as a as a research device um and a public health surveillance device, not just a uh place to deposit poop. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um 
We a little bit of follow up um, in the last um, episode. We talked about. Um, cooking temperatures, and um, I did go to the AFI AFICON Food Safety Leadership Conference and talked about some of the stuff that you and I talked about last week and some of the stuff that um, uh, Robin Miranda shared with me. Um, and then I did some uh, pick, took some pictures of my own of cooking temperatures, and 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 it was it was kind of interesting in the in the room where um, I, I asked the question about what temperature, and no one had like a really you know, clean and simple answer, which was good in a sense because it meant that we were all on the right track. And I, I tried to make the the case that if we want consumers to do it, then we're going to have to figure out like either um, some sort of standard, whether it be for temperature or follow these cooking directions, which would give us some you know log reduction, and then. Um, but really trying to make the case that that is that it's uh, important for us to at least have this conversation about what's the right number if we wanted to pick one, and maybe we maybe we don't. Um, but at the uh, afterwards, um, Deep New England sent sent us uh, some pictures this morning of a cooked meatball product, a fully cooked meatball product called um, Our Best Meatballs that are Swedish style. And it says, I'll read the heating instructions. Preheat oven to 350. Place frozen meatballs in a single layer on an ungreased baking pan. Bake until warm, roughly 30 minutes, or to an internal temperature of 150. Serve and enjoy. And she asked us what we thought about um, about that temperature. And I think meaning, like, is that the right temperature? Um, and why, you know, maybe why isn't it? Um, 155 or one or 160, and the the um, the note, the indicator here for us is it, it's a fully cooked product, and that 150 is really about what's the best quality for or what's the best for um, for the experience of of the person who's eating it. It's not about pathogen destruction um, at at that point, um, and so it yeah, I mean I think this. The, it goes into what I was telling Afi was you you actually have you want people to cook your product or at least not use it um, slacked or thawed and 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 raw because you have a, a ready food but it's a complicated message because it's a food that sometimes looks like it's fully cooked and sometimes it doesn't and it's a food that we have a lot of history with and have have this problem of not a, a history of doing the action that is risky and not seeing any effect of illness that we can draw a line to. So it makes it really, it's a, it's, it's a, it's complicated. And this one is, is another good example of is one fifty better than one forty five or better than one sixty five or less, whatever, less better. Um, and it's, it's, it's a number that's picked for, for quality, not safety reasons. And we need to parse those out sometimes. Right. And, um, you know, if, if you were to go to a higher temperature, I mean, again, theoretically, these are leftovers and theoretically leftovers, according to somebody, should be reheated to 165. But, you know, these are not going to be very good if they're maybe because they're already cooked. Right. So, um, yeah. And, and interestingly, I so I had not heard about this Our Best company, but apparently they make um, a whole bunch of different types of uh, meatballs. Uh, we will link to their their meatball page. Um, but one question I have for you, Ben, is when you like the name of this is Richard Fingers, our best Richard Close Richard Fingers, registered trademark meatballs. When you put our best in Richard Fingers like that, 
to me, that says that these are not really their best. <laughs> They're like, yeah, sure, we'll give you our best meatballs, sure. Can I have your? I've ordered our. I've ordered your best. Could you bring me out your best uh, meatballs? Oh yeah, yeah, here's our. These best. are really our best. These yeah. are really our best meatballs. Um, they make other things, I think, like our best. Oh, uh, they make a whole website of things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I've just, there's like six different kinds of meatballs alone. They have our best Italian style, colossal size, our best Italian style dinner size, our best Italian style sandwich size, our best four cheese meatballs, our best Swedish meatballs, and our best turkey meatballs. But I have to say, Ben, um, based on the, the information that Deep New England sent to us, they're serving suggestions for Swedish style meatballs. They're like for they're not that's not Swedish. Like that's <laughs> that's that's, not... that's like Italian. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's a I I I Swedes would be upset about this. Yeah, yeah, the Swedes the Swedes are coming for them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Yeah, you're you're right. Like six six meatballs is not that's we're talking Italian style. Um uh, yeah, I, I like I like our best. I like our best uh, Richard Fingers. That might be a show title. Um, <laughs> so so I, I have a question for you. Did you see the article on uh, flesh-eating zombie bacteria from washing your uh, hands? Uh, I, I did. I just saw it on your, on your Twitter feed. I, I thought I saw it on my Twitter feed through your Twitter, Twitter place. Yeah, my <laughs> Twitter place. I'm, Twitter I'm, after I tweeted about this, I – I'm I'm not sure this this seems a little suspect. So this is from an I think an Australian website, um, but it's about something that happened in is it Australia uh, news am Armenian. Oh, it's Armenian news. Oh, I apologize. Armenian news. But it's about a woman from South Carolina who contracted Klebsiella oxytoca or oxytosa. But after I read the article, it said uh, a shocking warning has been issued after an American woman contact contracted a deadly flesh-eating bacteria after using a soap dispenser in a public toilet. But if you read the article, it's it's not it doesn't definitively say how they knew it came from a soap dispenser in a public toilet. Right, right. So it the whole thing seems to me to be a little bit suspect. Well, right, and so um, it, it comes from. So and yeah, it, the the warning. Okay, so as a result, warning was issued to millions of Australians. This is where things get confusing. Oh, that yeah, yeah. Who wash their hands every day using soap from wall-mounted dispensers in pubs, restaurants, and hotels? The warning comes from leading cleaning expert Ralitza Prodonovo, uh, uh, who insists that unless soap dispensers are meticulously clean when refilled, they become breeding grounds for bacteria. Which is which is true, and you you link to this. Right, like you, we got some uh, oh. a JFP article. Yeah, well, so the, so I wrote I, I along with colleagues wrote an article that was published in the Journal of Food Protection uh, that is um, uh, is is not a correct link. Um, hold on one second. Um, but anyway, yeah. So Chuck Gerba and I uh, and and some others from Gojo wrote wrote this article. Um, but in the, in the news in the news article it says uh, to a test a test conducted by University of Arizona microbiologist Charles Gerba. Well, what really right. wasn't he was not the only one doing the test. Like we were part of it. So anyway, uh, so props for getting that wrong. But anyway, but Chuck is an amazing uh, and he actually I, I I found out about the article because Chuck sent 
it to me. So, um, so thanks Chuck for saying he doesn't listen, but thanks Chuck. For, I don't think so, but thanks for sending it. But yeah, so we did an article, we tested, uh, 279 restaurant soap dispensers. Um, and we found, uh, bacteria in a lot of them. And yeah, I mean, I, per, my personal opinion is that, um, uh, these, uh, open refillable soap dispensers are a, a bad idea. I would not, I would not recommend them. Um, I think, I think after, uh, this, um, I talked to, I think, I think I talked to Max, uh, Gerba about the, uh, Max, Max Gerba. And Max, I'm so sorry, Chuck and Max. I talked to Max about this. Um, and I think he went and replaced all the soap dispensers in, in cards, uh, against humanity, um, uh, to be the not refillable kind. Um, I think after I said, I said, I told him about this article. So I think, I think I've got that right. If not, I'm, I'm I apologize, but yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, influence of soap characteristics on food service facility type, uh, soap characteristics and food service facility type on the degree of bacterial contamination of open refillable bulk soaps. They're a bad idea. Don't, don't, don't do this folks, especially if you uh, have a food service uh, company, you should get, um, you know, get the, the, the bog, the bag, the bag, the, the, the pull out the bag. It's, it's more wasteful, generates more plastic waste, but it's not uh, – I, I just just don't recommend the refillable kind because once they get contaminated, once they get colonized, it, you can't, I don't think you can get them clean. Despite what um, um, uh, that person said, um, uh, Rowena uh, Ralitza, right, right. Uh, they, they, I would not vouch that you can meticulously clean them, right? You just need to not use them and, and just don't use the refillable kind of soap dispensers. Use the, the – the, plug and play type, or, or if you're going to give people their own little soap dispenser, uh, just buy a new one and throw the old one away or recycle the old one. Right. 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 And these, I, I experienced actually a soap dispenser, a refillable one at, at lunch today. Ooh. Yeah. Well, and, and so they're, they're also, you talk about how they get colonized when they're, um, when through use, this one was one of those ones where I had to like push my hand up into the nozzle to make the nozzle like squirt out soap. So just imagine there's a bunch of pathogens on my hand. I'm now like jamming it into the nozzle. And as it mm. squirts it out, there's got to be some sort of like, you know, potential for drawing what was on my hands inside. So it's, it, it, you know, it's not just the, the ones with the lever or someone filling it and opening it up and there's like toilet plume or their hands are dirty, but all the users can be contaminating those, those soap dispensers as well, or at least theoretically based on my experience today. Um, wow. Um, there's something else I wanted to talk to you about before we go. Where was it? Oh. This is a good one. I, I, I you put this in, and you may not have remembered this um, from last week, but um, a, you know, a listener, I think, to the podcast, but someone who is in this person's uh, laboratory definitely listens to the podcast because they mentioned it in the last episode. Um, uh, uh, she writes, "I've always been wary of the spam emails from illegitimate journals and meetings, but this <laughs> is the funniest." And it's entitled, it, it is uh, addressed to Dear Doctor Inhibition of Clostridium Botulinum and Model Reduced Sodium Pasteurized <laughs> Prepared Cheese Products. Recently, we have seen one of your published article, quote, Default Value Title, which is an exciting research content happening to be in the upcoming food science and felt that your participation will really justify the sessions des designed. So, uh, uh, and, and she writes, this group really needs to check their, check their spam software, at least make it look legit. Signed, Dr. Inhibition of Clostridium Botulinum, author of Default Value <laughs> Title. 
<laughs> so yeah. Um, uh, what would anything else you want to want to talk about before we go? Uh, yeah, I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about uh, how Sally is a dirty, dirty robot. <laughs> oh, dirty! You're a dirty robot, Sally. Robots, robots. Um, yeah, so robots, robots and food. Uh, so the salad station launches a salad robot at the North Oaks Medical Center. So, so Ben, uh, the world's fir- first fresh food robot created by Chow Biotics makes its Louisiana debut. Uh, this is an article um, from February 25th, 2019. Um and it's part of a collaboration between the Salad Station and Silicon Valley-based food robotics company Chowbotics, which is probably the same people that got tried to get that food code um, uh, issue on robots introduced. Um, so basically, this is what. So so this is a robot uh, that is going to uh, serve people food, but it's it's really it's more like a vending machine than an actual robot. Um, do you have thoughts? Uh, yeah. You have thoughts on uh, using your robots to uh, make food? I did. So in the um, in the article. Um, or in the um, maybe not even an article. I guess it's a press release. Press said, release. Let's call it. Let's, let's be generous and yeah, call it a press release. Let's call it a press release. It says uh, Sally reduces the risk of foodborne illness as ingredients are kept sanitary and separate. Um, and so I highlighted that and tweeted about it and had a, a bunch of people respond. Some of my favorites include Sally. What a stupid name for a salad robot. Robot. I would have gone with Gertrude. Um, <laughs> Someone who uh, responded, uh, Colm Atkins, responded, uh, Star slides entire building into an autoclave, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> That's a good one, yes. Um, and, what, and then other people bring up things like allergen separation. Um, you know, it's reducing human interaction. But what about, um, like, how do we deal with um, actual cross-contamination and cross-contact? And so, I yeah, I mean, I, I'm – I, I don't think that there's a uh, real good way to clean and sanitize. Um, but again, I haven't seen the robot and I want to see more about it. That was my point was when I tweeted it, I was like, how does this happen? How are you, how, how are you keeping, um, you know, how are you keeping uh, things clean and sanitized? Um, and tell me more about it. And I, there's not a lot in there. Just yeah, well, and there is there there is there is a picture of Sally the robot um, in the press release. If you click click on the link in the sidebar, and it does not look good. I mean, they've got a canister of tomatoes, they've got a canister of lettuce, and I gotta imagine that there's juices dripping down. I I this does not look good to me. Um, but but here's the thing. I mean, robots wouldn't contaminate our food because they don't poop. So that's that's a plus <laughs> on, on the plus side. Um, but my, my comment, which I think I might have tweeted at you, is like, d- did the people that designed this, do they understand cleanability and sanitation? Because that's a big problem with food processing equipment today, not just fancy robots, but right. just ordinary food processing equipment is it's designed by engineers who don't understand sanitation or cleaning. And I would really worry that this would, just like the soap dispensers, Ben, that this would get colonized and that it would lead to problems. So I'm I'm not uh, I'm not. Uh, going to be uh, eaten out of this uh, robot anytime soon. Uh, number one, because I don't have one near me, and number two, because I'm 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 a little suspicious. So, yeah, and and like temperature control as well. Well, I mean, you, I'm sure you can refrigerate the unit, but like I said, my my main issues really come down to cleanability and sanitation, um, and how often it's going to be serviced, and 
Yeah. Yeah. How do you just you dump you dump fresh food in the top? And is it a um, is it a first in first out? So I'm just continuously I, adding. Let's to let's the hope. Yeah. Let's hope it's first in first out. But then, but if it but if it is, when do you like clean it out? Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Well, and and I looking at the unit, I didn't I missed this picture of it before. Yeah. Um, the quality temperature that I want to hold tomatoes at is different. Oh, it's different. Yeah. Than, right. So do I have yeah. refrigeration? Like differences between those two columns? I don't know. I don't know. So check you, if you want to know exactly what we're talking about. We'll link direct directly to the picture. But this Sally Sally picture is is much more um, much use much much more useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, and it, what would be even more useful would be a schematic where I could like see inside and and have a little bit more information other than was in a press release. But we'll yeah. we'll link to the press release and we'll link to the uh, the image. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. Well, there you go, Sally. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been, been doing a little bit of deep digging here on this, uh, soap, uh, issue. And I, I'm not convinced that this story is legit because, uh, there's another picture of a woman, uh, on a really disgusting website, um, that, uh, that, that talks about whether that she thought she had leprosy, um, and it's from 2017, but there's another, in the original article, it said that it just happened this year. Weird. Um, and, and, it, and, and the article with, uh, with the, the woman with the skin disease and don't, don't click on the links if you, oh, uh, I know the pictures, Yeah, they're really gross. Uh, uh, <laughs> but it's not, um, it doesn't, it doesn't mention a soap dispenser anywhere in the, in the, in right. the article about that, that she thought she had leprosy. So I'm. I don't know the whole thing. I'm just very I'm confused about the whole thing, and I apologize if I had retweeted fake news. Uh, my my article on soap dispensers is not fake news, and so, but I but I wouldn't want to use illegitimate um, uh, information to promote my own particular scientific point of view. Um, so I, if I did that, I apologize. Well, and it's like uh, maybe someone uh, gets sick from E. coli one five seven H seven, and then the article is written about um, how it's important to like drive fast. Or slow, <laughs> or if you don't, right? Right? It's like the, the yeah. It's the, you lost me, but yeah. And, well, there, <laughs> and then we're at the end. Uh, but it's the same. It, it's at. Uh, it, there's no real connection, right? Like it's here's. There might a, not be. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's very. You know, the you can't the believe everything on the you see on the internet. Apparently, it's true. It's true. All right. Well, um, I think that's. Uh, I think that's a show. I think it is. Um, so check out uh, Food Safety Talk. Uh, on the on the iTunes and go rate us and um, uh, put reviews and stuff and keep keep asking us questions because it's fun to answer them. Yeah, like like and subscribe. Um, apparently, if you rate us in iTunes, it it helps people find the show. That's what they always say on other podcasts. I don't know. I don't know for a fact that that's true. Yeah, I, I don't know either. It might, it might not help people find the show, but anyway, if the very least, go and read some of the wonderfully hilarious and nice comments that people have left about us. And and if you're so inclined, leave leave us a comment. But it's not it's not required for listening. But uh, you know, but we you know. We, we, we liked we liked we haven't looked at the reviews in a while no. but uh, we, we like to hear from people we like people to to like us um yeah so yeah thanks thanks hey thanks everybody thanks thanks for listening we like all of you we're really glad you we, we really love doing this and we're really glad that all of you listen so thanks it's true and we still have after um like six years or more of doing this and 177 episodes now we still have a clean lyrics tag <laughs> so that's <laughs> good. Goodness. Yeah, so that's pretty. That's good news. Sixty ratings. There you go. 
Um, awesome, awesome stuff. All right, uh, Don, I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. don't have any new reviews last one was in 2018 hmm. um i just got a text from danny saying do you have sam's hockey equipment he has his last like practice of the year today so i have to go drive his his hockey equipment because i think it's in my car and not in hers i thought you were onto a different stick and ball game a stick and and uh, hitting game <laughs> we we, uh, we essentially are we have we have started the new one of lacrosse but we stop we um, Jack is finished, and Sam has a tournament in York, Pennsylvania, um, this weekend, and then he is finished. Oh, oh! So you're not quite, you're not really finished. You got one more tournament. To one go. more okay. tournament. We have yeah, practice tonight, practice tomorrow night, tournament uh, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we are done. But uh, but but essentially, the you know, out of the hundred and ten times that he's been on the ice, he only has three left. So it's pretty I'm nice. I'm really I get I get tired just hearing you talk about all the stuff you do with your kids. I think I was a bad parent. I don't think I did nearly as much stuff. I don't know. I it's you may I don't know. I just we we kind of like doing it. It's I would do it anyway. I guess I don't know. But it's <laughs> nice when it's when the season is over and like we get to watch TV. And, but it's not over. You have to go play a different stick and hitting I game. Know, but I, we didn't have to do anything this weekend at all okay. oh, on okay. it. So there was no – like, well, I mean, yeah, we did go watch lacrosse, but lacrosse is just so laid back. I'm not – I could sit out there and drink beer. I can't – I don't have to coach. It's great. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. I got this one. Um, I hope to get this done tonight. Okay. All right. We should schedule another one, huh? We should schedule another one. How's the 18th look? Uh, looking wide open, except for 3 o'clock. Why don't we try 10 a.m.? Works for me. Okay. And that's 178, I think. If I have my uh, stuff correct. March 18th, 10 a.m. Perfect. In. Done. Good. All right. Have, uh, have fun. I'll talk to you later.
All right. Bye-bye. Bye.